Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. A revolutionary invention that sows the seeds of disaster. It must have felt like Armageddon and the apocalypse all rolled into one. A primitive plane that rewrites the history of flight. Who really flew first? And a coin that's designed to kill. There was no official orders to commit suicide. I'm Don Wildman. Join me on a journey across the United States as we go deep into the vaults of the nation's most revered institutions, unearthing wondrous treasures from the past, extraordinary artifacts, and bizarre relics, each with a shocking story to tell and a secret to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. Towering over beautiful Lake Michigan is America's third largest city, Chicago, Illinois. And there's one institution here that highlights its illustrious past, the Chicago History Museum. Among its 22 million artifacts are the state's first locomotive, dresses from Marshall Fields, and stained glass designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. But deep in the museum's cold storage area sits a seemingly ordinary object from one of Chicago's darkest days. The artifact is a combination of materials. It has metal parts that move and operate. It's made primarily out of plastic. The glass uh, lenses are scratched. According to curator John Russick, these eyeglasses tell a sinister tale of hubris and murder. It's better than any crime narrative anyone has ever written. To whom did these glasses belong? And what role did they play in one of the most infamous crimes in U.S. history? May 21st, 1924, the south side of Chicago. Jacob and Flora Franks are waiting anxiously for their 14-year-old son, Bobby, to come home from school. He's hours late, and they are beside themselves with worry. Then, towards the end of the day, the phone rings. And a man on the other end of the line delivers some terrifying news. Flora Franks answers the phone. A man identifies himself as Johnson, calls to let her know that her son has been kidnapped and that she will get further instructions about how to get him back. Shocked and alarmed, 
The Franks call the police, who tell them to sit tight and await the kidnappers' next move. But the following day, the situation takes an ominous turn. There's a developing story in the press that there's a boy who's been discovered murdered in South Chicago. The victim, whose body has been found in a railway culvert, is identified as 14-year-old Bobby Franks. What began as a missing persons case is now a full-fledged murder inquiry. Police comb the crime scene for evidence, and soon they discover a crucial clue. Not far from the young boy's body is a pair of tortoiseshell eyeglasses, the same pair that now sits in the Chicago History Museum. Investigators assume that the spectacles belong to Bobby Franks until his parents come forward with a key piece of information. Bobby Franks didn't wear glasses. Police begin to wonder, could these glasses have been accidentally left at the murder scene by Bobby Franks' killer? When officers subject the spectacles to a forensic examination, they learn that while their style and prescription are not out of the ordinary, they do possess one very distinctive feature. The hinges were specially ordered. They came from overseas, and they really made these a unique pair of glasses upon closer inspection. In fact, there's only one outlet in the area that sells them. The glasses came from a particular shop in Chicago, Elmer Cohen Company, that issued only three pairs of similar glasses at this time. The police were able pretty quickly to narrow down a list of people who would have owned these glasses. One was out of the country, one was an elderly woman, and one was Nathan F. Leopold Jr. 19-year-old Nathan Leopold is the son of millionaire parents in Chicago's Jewish community and a family acquaintance of the Franks. He is a brilliant student by all accounts, studying law, and he's an avid bird watcher. Police bring in the unlikely suspect for questioning. Leopold protests his innocence and asserts that on the night Bobby Franks went missing, he was driving around the city with a friend, 18-year-old Richard Loeb. Richard Loeb was a very smart young man, like Nathan Leopold, from a wealthy Jewish family. He was an extraordinary student and a very charismatic young man. In search of answers, investigators call in Loeb for questioning. Loeb sticks to their story about driving around in Nathan's car and provides support for Nathan's innocence. Their story seems solid until police press Leopold about the mysterious eyeglasses found at the scene of the crime. Leopold admits that the spectacles are indeed his, but claims that they must have slipped out of his suit pocket the previous weekend when he was in the area birdwatching. Sensing that Leopold may be withholding information, the police re-examine his alibi and proceed to question Leopold's chauffeur about the night of the murder. At which point he tells them that Nathan's car was in his garage overnight while he was working on the brakes. When authorities confront Leopold and Loeb with the crack in their alibi, the two break down and confess to the murder of Bobby Franks. They admit that they had spent several months planning to kidnap and murder the boy and then extract a ransom from his parents. They wanted someone they knew so that they could easily seduce the boy into their car 
They hit him over the head and then stuffed a gag in his mouth and left him on the, the floor of the back of the car until he died. They waited until nightfall and they stuffed his body into a culvert under a railroad track. But the question remains, what drove these promising and well-to-do young men to commit such a heinous crime? It seems that behind his well-mannered and refined facade, Richard Loeb has been obsessed with reading about, planning, and committing the perfect crime. He believed that he was a superior being, highly intelligent, and that he could uh, anticipate the way a crime would be investigated, but also because he had the willing partner in Nathan F. Leopold. But unbeknownst to the scheming pair, the perfect crime unravels when Leopold's eyeglasses slip out of his breast pocket. At the trial, both Leopold and Loeb are sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Bobby Franks. The story shocks the public and becomes front-page news across America. And almost a century later, these unique prescription spectacles remain in the collection at the Chicago History Museum, reminding us of a horrific, senseless crime that captivated the entire nation. Situated among pastoral farmland in the serene suburb of Vint Hill, Virginia, is an old barn with a quaint appearance that belies its bleak interior. Here at the Cold War Museum, a broad array of artifacts paints a sobering picture of a frightening 40-year political crisis. But amidst the Soviet military uniforms and secret listening devices is one small object that at first glance seems like ordinary pocket change. The artifact is a U.S. silver dollar connected to a chain. Inside the silver dollar is a small compartment, a, a drill hole that would conceal a pin. This modified coin has a personal connection to museum founder Francis Gary Powers Jr. That's because it's an exact replica of a deadly contraption worn by his father during one of the most perilous top-secret missions in history. So what is this strange piece of currency? And how is it linked to a controversial event that threatened to unravel the fragile relationship between the world's biggest superpowers? Washington, D.C., 1960. The United States is locked in a tense standoff with the Soviet Union. Officials at the Central Intelligence Agency are undertaking high-stakes espionage operations in order to gain any advantage they can over their greatest adversary. The Eisenhower administration wanted to find out as much as they could about this potential enemy in case they decided to attack, America would be prepared. And on May 1st, the CIA prepares pilot Francis Gary Powers for a top-secret operation. His mission is to fly over a missile testing site deep inside Soviet territory using a sophisticated new photo surveillance jet called the U-2. The U-2 airplane uh, was one of the most important pieces of technology used during the Cold War, if not the most important. It could fly at altitudes above 70,000 feet and take photographic imagery of the ground below so detailed you could see where key infrastructure was on the ground. At that altitude, the U-2 has another indispensable advantage that will help complete its task. Because it flew so high, 
it was out of the reach of Soviet missiles. They did not have the capability to shoot down the airplane. As Powers readies to fly deep into Russian territory, he carries a silver dollar on a chain, just like the one now on display at the Cold War Museum in Vint Hill, Virginia. The silver dollar is not just a piece of jewelry. It was a device created by the CIA. Inside this coin is a tiny pin, which Powers can use in the unlikely event he falls into enemy hands. The pin that's concealed within the silver dollar was dipped in a toxin that would be used in case of torture to commit suicide. At 6.20 a.m., CIA officers watch as Powers takes off from Peshawar Air Station in Pakistan. But several hours later, it appears that the operation has not gone according to plan. Something had gone wrong with the mission because the airplane did not land where it should have. In fact, the CIA loses contact with Powers. They don't know if the pilot's alive or dead, where the airplane is, what has happened to the mission. Then, days later, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev makes a statement that shocks the CIA. Khrushchev announces to the world that they had shot down an American spy plane. But we also have captured the pilot, Francis Gary Powers, who's quite alive and kicking. Stunned CIA officials try to determine how an aircraft that was supposed to be out of range of enemy missiles could have been shot down. There was all the speculation that he had landed the plane intact, that he had spilled his guts and told the Soviets everything he knew about the U-2 program. So was Francis Gary Powers actually a Soviet spy? It's May, 1960. Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev announces that his country has shot down a U.S. spy plane and captured its pilot, Francis Gary Powers. But the CIA suspects that the pilot may have intentionally grounded the aircraft. So, has Gary Powers defected? Finally, on February 10th, 1962, Powers is returned in exchange for a Russian spy. But he is welcomed home under a chorus of skepticism within the intelligence world. Did he betray his country? Did he defect? Or is he a young man caught up in a dangerous circumstance? Powers is debriefed by the CIA. And in great detail, he explains what happened during his fateful flight. He says that just four hours into his mission, he was, in fact, hit by a Soviet missile. All of a sudden, the controls no longer respond. As a result, the nose pitches forward, the wings snap off, and Powers finds himself spinning down towards the ground in the wreckage. Powers bailed out, and his parachute deployed at 15,000 feet. And as he floated over the Russian countryside, he saw a car tracking his descent. Faced with the prospect of falling into the hands of the enemy, Powers debated his choices. Would he use the poison pin? to kill himself. The pin was an optional device to take and an optional device to use in case of torture. There was no official orders to commit suicide. Ultimately, Powers decided to test his resolve against his Soviet captors and did not use the pin. For nearly two years, the pilot languished in Russian prisons and says that during that time, he never divulged any top-secret information. 
And although the U.S. thought their plane was out of range of Russian missiles, by the time powers took off in 1960, all that had changed. From the very first U-2 flight in July of 56, the Soviets couldn't shoot it down. But then over the next four years, the Soviets improved their missile systems so that they could reach the altitude of 70,000 feet. But much of the information surrounding Powers' flight remains classified for decades, causing many Americans to question the airman's patriotism. It was a dark cloud that hung over his head till he ended up passing away in 1977. It's not until 1998, about two decades after Powers' death, that newly declassified information paints the entire picture of the pilot's mission for the American public and finally puts to rest any lingering doubts. After 50 years, it's now been shown that he is a true hero to our American country. And today, this replica of Power's toxic coin sits at the Cold War Museum, a reminder of one man's brave choice made during the fog of war. New York City. Just across the harbor from downtown Manhattan is the Staten Island Museum. Here, an early scuba diving suit, preserved invertebrates, and taxidermied birds document the often overlooked history of this urban island. But tucked away in the institution's archives is one strange chipped block with roots to a land thousands of miles away. It weighs about five to seven pounds, and it is smooth to the touch, and it is quite ugly to look at, actually. According to curator of history Patricia Salmon, this seemingly useless block gave birth to a multi-million dollar industry that today has touched the lives of countless Americans. It's one of the most popular products sold in the United States and the world today. So what exactly is this fractured brown mass? And what jaw-dropping product did it spawn? 1869, New York City. Thomas Adams is a scientist and inventor working out of his laboratory on Staten Island. And one afternoon, he's summoned to an unusual business meeting with former Mexican dictator General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. The deposed leader wants to reclaim the land he once ruled. And his goal is to raise enough money to hire an army and retake his former dominion. So he proposes they embark on a joint business venture, one that involves a hot new commodity on the American market, rubber. Rubber became very popular for making various products such as carriage tires and toys, but it was also getting very expensive. Spying a gap in the market, Santa Ana's idea is to create a rubber substitute from the sap of the sapodilla tree, known as chicle. But he needs Adam's help. Santa Ana was not a scientist or a chemist, so he needed somebody to help him process the chicle into a rubberized product. Thomas Adams immediately gets to work, trying to process the sticky sap into a durable, rubber-like material. Adams melts down the chicle, puts in various additives, but in processing it, Adams found out that it only shredded. It didn't bounce like they had hoped. It wasn't good for making toys or anything of that nature. Frustrated by Adam's lack of progress, the former dictator fires the inventor and abandons the project, 
leaving Adams with thousands of pounds of the seemingly useless chicle. But little does this crestfallen inventor know, he's on the cusp of bringing this odd substance into nearly every American household, laying the foundation for a multi-million dollar industry. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It's 1870 in Staten Island, New York. Inventor Thomas Adams has been trying to create a rubber substitute out of a Mexican tree sap called chicle. But every experiment has ended in failure. What Adams doesn't know is he's about to stumble upon an idea that will spawn a multi-million dollar industry. One day in the fall of 1870, Adams wanders into a drugstore in downtown Manhattan where he witnesses a transaction that will change the course of history. He saw a little girl buying some paraffin wax gum. Introduced in 1850, paraffin wax chewing gum was a hit with children across the United States. But a curious Adams soon discovers that the product is not without its flaws. He found out that the gum really didn't last very long. After a, a couple of seconds, it starts to get brittle and dry, and it didn't do the trick. Suddenly, Thomas Adams is struck with an epiphany. He remembered that Santa Anna would chew on the chicle. He just started thinking, wow, if I can make this chicle into chewing gum, I could make a really fine product here. Adams races home and immediately sets to work on his new idea. Armed with blocks of chicle, just like this one housed at the Staten Island Museum, the inventor begins preparing what he hopes will be a chewy treat for New York's masses. He actually started breaking off the little chicle and rolling it into balls and putting it in colored tissue papers. In February of 1871, Adams' New York number one gum hits the shelves in city drugstores, becoming an immediate sensation. Sales go really well. Children are enjoying the gum. It just becomes more and more popular. With the demand of his new product rising, Adams opens a factory and refines his chewing gum further. Adams makes a gum-making machine that actually makes the gums into flat sticks. And he introduces flavors to cater to America's sweet tooth. Adams added sugar and especially licorice, and that was the transformation from just a plain gum into the flavored gums that we know today. Over the next 70 years, Adams Company becomes one of the most prolific chewing gum enterprises in the world. By the 1940s, a dwindling supply of chicle cannot meet the growing demand for Adams' invention. So scientists develop the synthetic bases used in gum today. But a chunk of the raw material that started it all remains stored at the Staten Island Museum, where it all began nearly 150 years ago. 
a reconstructed log cabin from 1866. Tools used by Native American children at an 1840s Christian mission. And a windmill that stood at a dairy farm for 65 years. These are just a few of the items on display at the Kansas Museum of History in Topeka. While these artifacts are indelibly linked to the cultural past of the Jayhawk state, According to historian Bonnie Lynn Chereau, there is one piece on display that literally changed the course of history forever. It is a four-foot-wide iron implement that has three adjustable wheels. Beneath is a set of discs that are about 19 inches in diameter. This model promised to revolutionize life on the plains in the early 20th century. But how did it inadvertently contribute to a tragedy that defined an entire era? Kansas, the early 1930s. For over half a century, farmers have settled the western plains of the United States and transformed the vast open prairie into golden fields of wheat. This is the first time it had been plowed. Everybody knew that meant that it was going to be more fertile than lands in other places. The first part of the 20th century had delivered unprecedented bumper crops to Kansas farmers, and the region earns the moniker, the breadbasket of America. That is, until an event took place that was unlike anything anyone had ever experienced. April 14, 1935. It's a peaceful Sunday in Kansas. But by mid-afternoon, the quiet tranquility is suddenly shattered. It turned absolutely black. When people look toward the horizon, they see a cloud of unimaginable proportions, towering over 600 feet into the sky. It must have felt like Armageddon and the apocalypse all rolled into one. This fast approaching monster is a dust storm a violent maelstrom of strong winds that sweep up fine particles of dirt and dust and swirl them through the atmosphere at a ferocious pace. Soon, 60-mile-an-hour winds whip thick black dust across the plains and send panicked citizens in search of cover. The storm buries everything in its destructive path. A stunned community is left wondering, what could possibly have caused this sudden disaster. It's 1935 in Kansas. A massive storm rips through the Jayhawk state, blotting out the sun and filling the air with a thick, suffocating dust. But could this terrifying natural disaster actually be man-made? This monstrous storm 500 miles wide and 800 miles long swept up to 300 million tons of soil across a vast swath of the country. That one storm moved as much dirt as they had to remove to create the Panama Canal. By Monday, April 15, 1935, just 24 hours after the storm began, scores are dead and millions of dollars in property have been destroyed. Newspapers dub the event Black Sunday, and America comes to know this devastated region by a bleak new name, 
the Dust Bowl. Some survivors think that Kansas was simply the victim of a freak once-in-a-century storm. But the men who turned the Great Plains into America's breadbasket have a different theory. That the farmers themselves caused the Dust Bowl. The origins of this bizarre disaster can be traced back to 1917. The vagaries of life on the plains, fluctuating grain prices, and unpredictable weather mean that farmers are under massive pressure to reap as high a yield as possible from their land. And one man invents something that he believes will help. His name is Charles Angel. Charles Angel was one of these people that they got an idea into their head, he bought the components, and he put it together and tested it on his own. Tinkering on his Meade County farm, he creates a revolutionary new plow. Standard plow blades push the earth in many different directions, limiting the speed with which farmers can operate their tractors. But Angel's plow has a set of disks, all pointed in the same direction. This arrangement allows his plow to pulverize everything in its path quickly and efficiently. Charles Angel's invention is an immediate success. A lot of farmers thought it was exactly what they needed at the time. The Angel plow has another advantage, allowing farmers to prepare the land for the precious precipitation that feeds their crops. Farmers believed that they had to make their soil ready to accept any moisture after a rainfall. But many farmers questioned the wisdom of pulverizing acre upon acre of prairie land. People started to recognize the unnaturalness of plowing up every bit of biological and plant material and leaving absolutely nothing to hold the soil down, which ended up having disastrous consequences. While Charles Angel's plow had once brought great prosperity to the region, it had also inadvertently contributed to a wave of destruction when high winds swept across the plains on that fateful day. Ironically, he created a plow that allowed thousands of acres to be pulverized and to be picked up by the wind and create dust storms. In the years following Black Sunday, waves of dust storms continued to ravage the Great Plains. By 1940, 50 million acres of farmland are ruined and a staggering 2.5 million people are left homeless or forced to migrate. And today, at the Kansas Museum of History in Topeka, Charles Angel's plow serves as a quiet reminder of the unintended consequences of man's attempts to control Mother Nature. Stratford, Connecticut. In this tranquil waterside town is a museum dedicated to the nation's high-flying achievements, the Connecticut Air and Space Center. Here, you'll find a flight simulator from the 1950s, a former Air Force craft, and an active restoration of a 1945 fighter plane. But among these complex, powerful machines is a relic whose construction is far simpler. This artifact is made of Japanese silk and bamboo. It is very light for its size. According to museum board representative Andy Kosh, this remarkable specimen tells a tale that rewrites the history books. So what is this artifact? 
And how does it alter the story of man's first flight? December 17, 1903, Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. After years of painstaking research, brothers Orville and Wilbur Wright are about to test their first motorized flying machine. And when the airplane takes to the skies, covering 120 feet in 12 seconds, the crowd of onlookers is amazed. A photographer records the moment in an iconic picture. This is the flight that we see in all the history books. Ultimately, the Wright brothers are deemed the first to fly. But in 1937, three decades after the famed flight, a book is published that turns the world of aviation upside down. It brings a story to light about a 27-year-old sailor and aspiring pilot from Bridgeport, Connecticut, named Gustav Whitehead. Even as a young child, he was very interested in flight. He was inspired to fly. According to the legend, Whitehead decides to follow his childhood obsession and designs his very own flying machine. And on August 14, 1901, two years before the Wright brothers' flight, he finally unveils the craft to a crowd of people. But the intriguing gas-powered vessel appears to be anything but aerodynamic. He used his sailing background to build an airplane that looked a lot like a sailboat with wings. Despite its odd appearance, Whitehead is confident it can fly. So he climbs into his invention, and within minutes, it lifts off the ground. He rises, and he really flies for a while. It purportedly soars 50 feet in the air, covering a half a mile at 30 miles per hour. Higher, faster, and longer than the Wright brothers would two years later. A few days later, the event is picked up by a local paper. But the only documentation of the flight is a simple sketch. With no photographic evidence, the story fails to capture national attention. The lack of documentation has always been an issue with Whitehead's flight because there's no proof. Gustav Whitehead retreats into obscurity and dies in 1927. The 1937 book about Whitehead's life revives interest in his story. But skeptics point to the craft's unusual design as proof that it couldn't fly. And once again, the legend of Gustav Whitehead is lost to history. Until 1986, when Andy Koch and his aviation friends attempt to solve the mystery once and for all. They believe there's only one way to get to the bottom of the first flight controversy to rebuild the plane and test it themselves. We looked at Gustav Whitehead's airplane, and we had aeronautical engineers draw up blueprints with exact dimensions. In just over a year, the team manages to complete an identical full-sized model. But now, one crucial question remains. Will it actually fly? When the Wright brothers took to the skies in 1903, they were hailed as the fathers of flight. But some claim that that distinction belongs to Gustav Whitehead, a man believed to have flown two years earlier. So what's the truth behind the mystery of man's first flight? 
With the construction of the replica completed, Andy Kosh and his team are about to find out if this craft can actually fly. And it leaped off the ground right away. Our flight was about six feet in the air, and we went the length of a football field, actually 330 feet. The replica and its flight proves that Whitehead's plane could have flown. So was he, in fact, the first man to fly? I think that this airplane calls into question who really flew first. We're not trying to take anything away from the Wright brothers, but I think Whitehead is an unsung hero. Without any photographic evidence of Whitehead's flight in 1901, historians continue to support the Wright brothers' record as the first men to fly. Whether the history books will ever be rewritten remains to be seen. But this airplane on display at the Connecticut Air and Space Center will forever remind visitors of one of the most monumental inventions in the history of aviation. Nestled on a quiet street in a picturesque suburb of Boston is the Westford Museum, a gateway into the world of colonial New England. But among the Revolutionary War uniforms and primitive explosives is one six-foot-tall artifact that tells a story from a much earlier century. It is a plaster cast, approximately six feet high, of a carving in rock. This really is an ancient artifact. According to author David Brody, the tale behind this molding could revolutionize the history of America. So who created this mysterious engraving? And what does it reveal about the origins of our nation? It's the late 1300s. Developments in shipbuilding and seafaring technology have allowed European explorers to begin striking out into uncharted waters. One of these adventurers has heard tales of fish-filled seas and unexplored land west of Greenland. His name is Prince Henry Sinclair. The commodity he was after was the currency of the day, and that currency was dried fish. That was gold in the bank. As legend has it, in 1398, Sinclair begins making preparations for an expedition to what would later be known as the Grand Banks, the popular fishing grounds off the coast of Newfoundland. He assembles a crew of 200 men that includes a trusted advisor, Sir James Gunn. Later that year, it is believed the two leaders and their team of intrepid Scotsmen set sail across the Atlantic in search of the fabled fertile waters. But as the story goes, neither Prince Henry Sinclair nor James Gunn are ever heard from again. There is no record of Prince Henry ever returning to Scotland. There's no commemoration of his death. And for years, the fate of the journey remains shrouded in mystery. But nearly 600 years later, one man's discovery would unearth shocking clues about the true fate of Sinclair's legendary voyage. May 30th, 1954. An amateur archeologist named Frank Lynn is searching for Native American artifacts on a local hillside. And he sees the rough outlines of a carving into the bedrock. Using chalk to connect the surface markings, 
Glenn gradually uncovers an intricate six-foot piece of art. It was a fairly elaborate carving of a knight in full battle armor with his battle sword holding his shield. Question one, of course, is what's a knight doing on a rock ledge in western Massachusetts? To extract greater detail from the carving, a plaster cast is created, just like this one now displayed at the Westford Museum. Glynn also takes a series of photos and sends them to a weapons expert in London who determines the blade engraved in the stone is a very specific type of sword called a wheel pommel, commonly brandished by medieval knights. This is not a colonial artifact of any kind, but something from the 14th century. And on the knight's shield, the expert sees an identity marker common in medieval Scotland, a family crest. The family crest was the earliest known representation of the chieftain of the clan Gunn. It's the same clan of the lieutenant believed to have sailed with Henry Sinclair in 1398, Sir James Gunn. Glynn is rocked by the revelations. While Christopher Columbus is the explorer credited with first reaching the New World in 1492, Glynn begins to wonder, did Sinclair and his men beat Columbus to the punch? It's the mid-1950s in Massachusetts. A man named Frank Glynn has made what he believes is the find of the century. Rock carvings made by European explorers that predate the discovery of America by 100 years. So did medieval knights really beat Columbus to the New World? For almost a decade, Glynn continues to search for more evidence to prove his history-shattering theory. Then, in 1963, this large rock is salvaged from a barn in Westford, Massachusetts and donated to the local historical society. It has carvings on it that seem to be in a style similar to that of the Westford Knight. When Frank Glynn sends images of the artifact to the UK for further analysis, the report comes back with some startling information. The boat carved into the piece of granite bears a striking resemblance to a single-masted vessel called a cog. In fact, this same boat can be found carved into the coat of arms on the Westford Nightstone. Franklin now has two artifacts that are of the late 14th century era, the boatstone and the Westford Knight carving. Could it be that these two images carved into these two stones were created by voyagers from Henry Sinclair and James Gunn's lost expedition? Frank Glynn's quest to uncover the truth is cut short when he passes away in 1968. But nearly 40 years later, in 2007, the Westford Historical Society sets out to prove Glynn's theory using state-of-the-art science. The weathering patterns in the carved surface are examined microscopically by a geologist. This geologist reached the conclusion that the carvings were consistent with 600-year-old carvings, which again brings us right back to the 1398 date. It's the same date that Sinclair is said to have embarked on his fabled journey to the New World. Columbus was here in 1492, yes. But he was probably late to the party. 
Theories about who made these strange carvings are not set in stone. But today, these artifacts remain on display at the Westford Museum, serving as a reminder that the true history of America's discovery may have yet to be written. From a primitive plane to a pair of spectacles, a destructive plow to a poison pin. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum.